Welcome to season two of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. In these episodes, we share international stories about the pandemic around the world, what it looks like in everyday lives, as well as what it looks like from the eyes of researchers and professionals who work on controlling the pandemic. This podcast is designed for information to be translatable from epidemiologists, emergency medical professionals, and those who do work on the front lines and what it looks like in everyday family culture on planet Earth during this historic moment. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about Anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used. And um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free. And they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer. And then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. Welcome to COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Today, we're going to be talking about vaccine availability and vaccine equity in diverse communities. We're going to be speaking with Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, and she'll be sharing with us some of her experiences and insights in terms of geography, culture, and vaccine, vaccine equity. It's wonderful that we're at this new stage of the pandemic, at least in the United States and certain countries, where we're able to access the vaccine and starting to see the numbers of infections decreasing, the numbers of deaths thankfully beginning to decrease. However, we are finding disparities in the way that the vaccine is being distributed, in the way that diverse communities are able to access the vaccine, those health outcomes as a result. So today we'll be talking a little bit more about that. I would like to share with you that we have a new public health podcast network. To find out more about how to join the network as part of our directory or to become a member of the network, visit publichealthpodcasters.com. I recently had the opportunity to speak at San Diego State University virtually about the power of podcasting for health equity, and I was able to share some of the stories about what has been happening around the world as it relates to COVID-19 public health policy and culture. If this is something that your university would like to hear more about, I'm available to give talks on this very subject at april at aprilmorenophd.com. I hope you enjoy this episode with Kristen Urquiza of Marked by COVID. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. Today we're going to be talking about more of the cultural context of COVID-19 
and public health aspects of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And today we have our special guest, Kristen Urquiza with us again today. She is the co-founder of Marked by COVID. And I'm just really excited that she's here with us to talk about the pandemic and some of the new developments that Marked by COVID has been doing. So welcome, Kristen. Hi, so thank you so much for having me again. It's so good to see you. Here last time we were able to talk to you about some of the issues that were happening in Arizona and some of the things that were happening around the time when your father was diagnosed with COVID and passed away. You know, some of the legislative, the things that were missing in terms of how people could be protected from the pandemic. So today mm -hmm. I would just love to hear about how things are going. I hear that currently you are in Northern California. How is COVID over there? I mean, it's so different here than back in Phoenix where my parents and my dad lived and uh, where I spent a lot of time. But, you know, I'm in San Francisco and you walk down the street, every single person is wearing some sort of face shield. There is really strict and just sort of normalized approach to how you enter in restaurants and stores. And it feels like we've adapted here. But you're also seeing sort of just bigger things happening. There's San Francisco. It's one of the most expensive places in the country to live. But the tech industry has decided to give tech employees, a lot of them, um, unlimited work from home privileges. So you're seeing a lot of people leave the city and that is actually having you know a positive impact for renters. Rents prices are going down. This is a major disruption and it's, I think, important for all of us to recognize that so that as we take on this colossal task of moving through this pandemic and eventually recovering and building back that we try and do it in a way that's equitable and actually leaves us in a better position than when we were when we got here. I wonder what the economic impact is going to be. We've seen some of the benefits during the shutdown, like in Europe or even around the world where we saw wildlife coming back. We've got some coyotes in my backyard. We've got oh, wow. so much uh, animal life out here. Curious to see what things are going to be like when we start returning back. And people have been starting to, we've seen a lot of traffic already coming back, rush mm -hmm. hour drives and things yeah. like that. But mm -hmm. what is the impact going to be now that we're returning to work, people planning to go back to school in the fall, things like that. It's going to be a new way of living. That's exactly right. And I think that some things will never fully sort of come back the way they were. And I think that, you know, we may need to have some time to grieve those old ways of being, but some of the new ways I think are going to be better. And sometimes the silver lining that we have to look towards and the lessons that we've learned and the wisdom that we've gained from this, from this time period. We talked a little bit about misinformation at the time, uh, last time we spoke. We didn't really get into the topic of the Latinx community, and mm -hmm. we're, we're both Latinas, and mm -hmm. uh, this topic didn't come up last time, but I'm really curious to hear about what you've been seeing out there in terms of maybe the Latinx community in Arizona, the Latinx community in San Francisco, and what health outcomes have been looking like with COVID. Yeah, I'd love to talk about this. This is, you know, honestly, April, this is one of the reasons why I launched with my partner, Mark by COVID, and shared my dad's story was 
really experiencing firsthand the disparate outcomes that our Latinx community is experiencing. So at the time when my dad got sick, people in our my childhood neighborhood where he still lived, where my mom still lives, were waiting 13 hours in line to get a test. Now this wasn't like March, you know, or February when we didn't have tests. This was in June after the state has shut down, reopened, promising that the infrastructure was there, the tests were there. And they were there for the affluent and mostly white communities. But, you know, my neighborhood, people were desperate for tests. And my neighborhood also had the highest per capita cases at the time when Arizona had the highest per capita cases this summer in the country. So, you know, this wasn't some very rural place out in the middle of nowhere. This is in the middle of Phoenix. It's a 75% Latinx community, 30% immigrant. I was delighted, you know, as part of my activism to see the governor of Arizona start to get tests into our community, you know, too late for my dad, but better for others. But even the past week, I've been so distraught once again, looking into some of the numbers of vaccination rates. And I hate to report that my neighborhood once again is behind and not just a little bit behind, it's egregiously behind. So the state of Arizona is at a 40% vaccination rate, the affluent, you know, mostly white neighborhoods at 77%. And my community is at 14%. 14%. And we're also, as you know, the essential workers, we're the folks that, you know, are out there every single day in the grocery stores or in the pharmacies or janitors, what what have you. And we're not getting vaccinated. And so while I am grateful that we are in a time where our federal government is taking this pandemic more seriously, you know, we've passed the benchmark of 200,000 shots in arms and we are moving in the right direction. The country is overall better, but my neighborhood is not. And this, I think, is the important message that we all need to wrap our compassion around as well as action, that the Latinx community, other communities of color are still not getting the type of treatment needed to overcome decades, if not centuries of lack of investment and prioritization. And this has me up at night, to be honest with you. We see these counts every day. We see the numbers from the local public health agency. They talk about the number of people that were vaccinated. Then they also still coincidentally, simultaneously talk about the number of people who have been infected and the people who have still died. And we don't see a breakdown in terms of race, ethnicity, what those people look like, who they are, who their families are, and their backgrounds, SES, all of it. Is there one reason why, or is there a combination of reasons why? Because popular belief would have us think that the Latinx community and the African-American community are being non-compliant or whatever, that they just don't want the vaccine. Is that Mm -hmm. what you're seeing or is it more than that? It is so much more than that. And that's, you know, I was just looking at some data yesterday that was confirming that the Latinx community actually has the lowest vaccine hesitancy rate across all ethnic groups, the lowest vaccine hesitancy, but also the lowest vaccine rate itself. And 
the issues are much more complex. So first and foremost, I was talking the other day to a teacher who teaches in my childhood neighborhood who was saying a, a lot of her students are, when they're talking to their parents about the vaccine, they're scared that they'll be asked for paperwork about their citizenship and that they could possibly be put on a list and deported because they don't have legal status in the country. So there's issues of immigration. This misinformation and fear coming off of four years of targeted raids in that community, it makes sense to me, but it's it's more than that too. It's issues of transportation. This community lives very much around the poverty line. And as you get closer and closer to that, the number of cars per household declines. It's hard to get around places. And also people don't have time to take off of work to go and get into the vaccine line because there's appointments. And then on top of that, I had to help both my mother and my dad's brother navigate through the state vaccination signup form because it just didn't quite make sense for them. And they were on the little bit of the older side of the spectrum. So it's just a combination of all of these factors and at the end of the day, you know, we need to make this as simple as possible and as targeted as possible. We need to be bringing those shots to places of worship, to grocery stores, to places of work. We need to be in some instances, maybe even going door to door to help educate and have mobile vaccination sites where people can right then and there get their shot. And ultimately the way that I see it is that it may cost a dollar, say, for us to vaccinate a wealthy, affluent um, white person. And it may cost us $5 to vaccinate somebody who's an immigrant, who is living around the margins. We need to be investing that $5. And we should be investing $10 because this is in a community that has been ravaged by this pandemic. I mean, I lost my dad. We lost four other members, our, our extended family. You were sharing that you've lost folks in your family as yes. well. Like this is happening to us. We're dying. We've both lost family on my husband's side, on my side of the family, people here in Los Angeles, people in El Paso. And these are people that had to go to work. They don't have time off. They also have, they speak Spanish. So that's another concern in terms of getting the test, getting access to information, getting the vaccine. And there are many challenges, but I really appreciate the fact that you are saying that these are not people who are deliberately trying to avoid the vaccine. This is not a vaccine hesitancy issue. It's not at all. And there's also been more and more conversation around how for the few people where there was hesitancy and for any person who's of color and has hesitancy, there is a long history as to why. Yes. But even the people who may have had hesitancy in the first place, as they see more people in their community getting vaccinated, having a positive experience, and they're getting the information that they need in the language and through the, the trusted community members, that hesitancy has gone away. It's, it's now a completely different issue and we are not rising to the occasion. And in fact, to the point that you were just making, I really appreciate that President Biden keeps a number of people who have passed in the back of his agenda in his breast pocket. But I also want him to have the percentage of 
people of color and impacted relative to what their burden should be. We have had such a long history in this country of challenge with systemic oppression, racism that has resulted in disparate health outcomes. And we need to have all of our leaders talking about this with courage so that we are naming the problem and that will bring the necessary attention and resolve to, to actually tackle it, I believe. So both mm -hmm. of us have degrees in public health. Do you think that this is going to come from a public health agency or where are these issues going to be addressed of disparity? Yeah, we were just chatting about this a moment ago before we got on the, on the podcast. It's like our agencies aren't doing enough to address the disparities at all or, or tackle this head on. And in addition to that, even that aside, the public in general has lost so much trust in public health agencies and the government due to the massive fumble that we have made over the course of the last year with this pandemic. And while things are getting better, the trust is broken. It's absolutely broken. The way that we're going to really tackle the inequities is through the community. We need to be investing in community leaders, people who look like the people that we want to get vaccinated, our communities, whether it's Latinx, the Asian AAPI community, other POC, we have such rich networks that already exist. We need to be tapping into those and empowering that with resources so that people are trained, have resources to hire and bring in, have resources to be able to print out the flyers or send out the social media chats. We need to tap into that infrastructure that already exists, that's culturally competent, mm -hmm. that's competent within the local cultural competencies, mm -hmm. which is in the different languages or dialects or jargon. And, and that is heralded by people that the community already looks up to, whether that the teachers, churches and church leaders, community organizers, the list goes on and on. And, and I don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge missed opportunity. It's not just a missed opportunity. It's, it's lethal at this point. And I think so many people are just tired. There's not enough clear information. Public health, what epidemiology is a huge part of it, but the mm -hmm. epidemiology, the data around people of color and SES and language trends and things like that is so often missing in what we're doing. I mean, the data is just so spotchy when it comes to these important demographic factors that enable us to really understand what's happening on these local levels. And from what we do have, we know that we are in, a, in bad shape and that calls for an army of resources to not only be collecting data in the right way, but also not waiting any longer to make the investments needed to build local storytellers, whether it's about vaccinations or regular safety measures now, or even services that are available. I mean, there was, as you probably know, this this FEMA funding to help cover costs of burials and it was been incredibly popular, but I also wonder, like, is that information getting into the communities that have been hardest impacted? And 
the truth is I don't think it has. I've seen nothing in Spanish. I've seen nothing in some of the tribal languages for the communities that have been most impacted. Mm-hmm. You know, here in San Francisco, it's both the Latinx community as well as the AAPI community that's been severely impacted. We have a huge Chinese population here. I've seen nothing in any language um, other than English. That is terrifying. There's a lot of a lot of need out there, a lot of programming and a lot of services mm-hmm. that still need to exist. And tell us about the work that you've been doing. I know you've been doing some new work, some new developments with Marked by COVID activism as it relates to the pandemic. Tell us a bit more about the work you've been doing. I would love to. It's been a little, it's, all, it's almost been 10 months since my dad passed. And it's been both the longest and the shortest 10 months of my life. But one of the things that this time has been able to allow me is the opportunity to meet more and more individuals who've been impacted or severely harmed by COVID. And our organization is growing. And part of what we've gotten really clear on is who we are and who we are meant to be. And I see Mark by COVID as the leading victim and survivors advocacy group in the United States that's making sure that the people who've been most harmed are not left behind in, you know, policy as well as public health and not just our acute needs of right now, but the ongoing needs. And this is something that is really of interest to me because none of us have lived through this kind of level of, of crisis and pandemic before. Grief is strange and not linear and we have needs now, but there will be unique needs that we learn about in two, five, 10 years down the line that we are going to need solutions on the scale that only government can provide equitably and accessibly. And so what Mark by COVID has been doing is, you know, having conversations with our legislators to call for permanent recognition of the COVID tragedy through creating a holiday so that Going forward, we can have a permanent day of remembrance and mourning. We've also been working towards permanent memorials, like physical spaces and museums and DC and others. So we can collect and tell stories to be able to give the breadth as well as the depth of the pandemic. But we're also looking at ways to promote this idea of restitution. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to make sure that those most harmed do not get further left behind. Mm -hmm. And we're still figuring out exactly what that means, but there's a great need for not only financial relief, but mental health services and continued support that we're just sort of figuring out now. And so it's been a journey and I am both incredibly humbled as well as honored to be with this growing group of individuals who are sharing their stories really as an act of love for their loved ones who passed as well as love for greater humanity and that we can do and be better. Could you share some of the stories you've been hearing? I know that you share some in social media. Um, yeah. I'm also curious to hear about the long COVID survivors. What is going on with that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So on long COVID, we just did a community needs assessment. Several hundred people answered the call out of our broader community. It was completely anonymous. And some of the findings have been just 
horrifying. One is that a great majority of people who have been, who've lost a loved one also have had COVID themselves and over half of them are suffering from some sort of long COVID or prolonged COVID symptoms. And one of the things that is terrifying about this issue of long COVID is that so many of these folks have also had job insecurity, which means that their health insurance has been dependent upon whether or not they've had a job. And while people have been able to access emergency sort of healthcare funding right now, that's uncertain for the future. And they're also living under so much stress that they don't know what their health is going to be like in two months, let alone five years. So we are dealing with, a, I think about the grief issue and that we have a pandemic of grief happening right now, but I think we also have this pandemic of secondary impacts that are coming from people who survived the pandemic, but are just underneath this litany of symptoms that are persistent and real and not recognized quite fully yet, both in the policy world, but also in the treatment world. On top of that, mourning the lives of their their loved ones, their relatives who have passed away from COVID and the survivors issues uh, that Mm -hmm. accompany that. Yeah. And to build off of that, it's the thing that I have been I've had my eyes open about, but my eyes have stayed open as I've heard story after story that while some people have been quote unquote fortunate enough to just be impacted by COVID in one way, like they lost their job or they themselves had COVID, the more, as more time goes on, more people are impacted by several harms. And so I was just, you know, one of our activists in Massachusetts, Jennifer, she's wonderful. You know, she, at the beginning of the pandemic, they were worried about her husband, who's an essential worker who didn't have access to ample PPE. Luckily he's been fine so far, but her father contracted COVID. He's been dealing with long COVID symptoms. She was grateful that he survived. Unfortunately, a couple of months after that, her mother contracted COVID. Her mother wasn't as fortunate. Jennifer ended up losing her job. She lost her health insurance. She is dealing with major depression and other grieving um, issues on top of already having pre-existing issues around mental health and PTSD. She had to use her stimulus check to rent a U-Haul to be able to put and storage to put her mother's belongings in. It's just like every, like one thing after the other. And you see this clear picture of so much compounded trauma and loss. It's just mind boggling as to how some people can even get out of bed on a daily basis because they have been battling this from every single perspective possible. And we've got to care about this. These are our neighbors. This is happening all around us. Yeah. I don't know how to make people care about people, but I'm glad that some people do have heart. We are with you in terms of vigilance. We are with you in terms of 
definitely understanding the seriousness of this pandemic. I don't think it's over. I don't think we're post pandemic yet. I don't know when that's going to happen. There are the variants that everyone is talking about. There is the surge happening in South America and Brazil and in India. Um, we could very well be in a situation where this is prolonged, not just for several months, but another year if we do not get control the spread. And that is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely heartbreaking. In the clear yet. What can we do to support Mark by COVID at this time? We're right now fundraising to keep our doors open and lights on. So markbycovid.com backslash donate and support us financially. We're 100% volunteer runs and supported 100% by individual contributions. That helps us keep telling people stories, uh, meet with legislators, be able to petition on important issues, that sort of thing. The other thing too is, is just to keep following us on social media platforms and sharing out the content. There are people's stories need to be shared in one of the most powerful ways. I think that we can support people sharing their stories is leveraging our platforms to share somebody's story and, and the impact that that's had. That I think helps build empathy is us being vulnerable with one another saying, I read Jen's story and I think you should read it too because she has been suffering and she should know that her life matters and that she's not alone. We're doing our part to support you. We're going to do our part to get the word out about Mark by COVID. Thank you so much for sharing the stories that you've heard about people who have been impacted by COVID at this time. Thank you so much for sharing your work and your light, despite your own family challenges, the hardships that have been happening with your father's passing as well. Know that we're here supporting you. Thank you.